From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Tokyo Olympics are a week away, but a year late because of the pandemic, which gave rock climber Colin Duffy of Broomfield more time to train. I've been a late bloomer, so in the last couple of years, with each inch I grow, it's been really helpful to my climbing. This is the first time climbing's in the games. At 17, Duffy's one of Team USA's youngest members, but he got an early start. I would always climb on furniture at the house, like exercise bikes and the railings. Then, what does one whale say to another? A Colorado scientist spent a month in Alaska to find out. If one whale says, I am here, and another whale says, I am there, that's the best way to know who all is in the neighborhood, right? Because if you don't make a sound as a whale, you are functionally invisible. CPR's financial backbone is built with support from the community. There are many different kinds of gifts that make an impact, including gifts of real estate. You can donate real estate that is owned outright or real estate with an existing mortgage. And the property can be located anywhere in the U.S. Your generosity will support the news and music you value. Explore the benefits of donating a gift of real estate on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The Tokyo Olympics are a week away, delayed a year because of the pandemic, which gave 17-year-old athlete Colin Duffy more time to prepare. He's one of the youngest members of Team USA, and he's competing in a sport that's never been in the games before, climbing. Duffy joined me from his home in Broomfield. And Colin, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, in official Olympics verbiage, I guess it's called sport climbing. Um, but is this a game changer, do you think, for rock climbing? Uh, yeah, I think it's super monumental for the sport to finally be included in the Olympics. Hopefully it gains more publicity and helps the sport grow. Helps the sport grow. You want to see more people climbing, huh? Definitely. Why? Why do you want to see more people climbing? What's in it for them? I think climbing is a very unique sport that's pretty big in Colorado since with lots of mountains and lots of climbing gyms, but especially in other places of the country, it's not well known. So I think a lot of people would really enjoy climbing and I hope the sport gains popularity. Yeah, and Chris, you don't have to have mountains to do climbing because indeed there are climbing gyms, which makes me wonder about the Tokyo Games. Will you be climbing on natural surfaces or manufactured rock? So we'll be climbing on manufactured holds. All competitions are like on indoor, like plastic or not plastic walls, but just kind of the fake competition is going to look like the climbs you see in the gym. Okay. There are three rock climbing disciplines in the Tokyo Games, as I understand it, lead, bouldering, and speed. Do you compete in all of them? Uh, yes. So for uh, the first Olympics here in Tokyo for climbing, there will be kind of a separate competition for each of the disciplines, but it'll multiply your rank from each of them. Got it. Uh, they all contribute to the final score. Mm-hmm. What's your strongest? Uh, I'd say I'm best at lead. I've had the most success there. And explain Hopefully. lead for us, Colin. Lead is, I think, the more it's the most traditional discipline in climbing. Climbing with rope and clipping into gear on the way up. And just the objective is to get the highest. So the routes are difficult and a good test of endurance and really push athletes to uh, the max and you're just trying to get as close to the top as you can. 
I understand there's been some controversy over adding the speed discipline because speed isn't always the measure of a good climber. Um, do you have a take on that? Uh, yeah, speed is definitely much different than the other two disciplines. Bouldering and lead are uh, different that you never know what's in front of you. Like every time you compete, the route is different and the movements are nothing like you've exactly seen before. Mm. Most climbing competitions really have the mental game and problem solving is really important. But speed climbing is much different that it's a uh, standardized route that's used all over the world. So people that are uh, specifically trained speed climbing are climbing the exact same route over and over again every time they train. So it's much, much different. That's fascinating. I appreciate that explanation. Watching some of the videos of you climb, honestly, it's like watching someone defy gravity, the way you swing and leap from hold to hold. Sometimes it's like you're crossing from tree branch to tree branch Mm -hmm. visually. You do make it look effortless. I wonder what being in the zone feels like for you. How how do you know you're in the zone? Uh, I think whenever I'm in the zone, things just feel more effortless than in a normal training session. That adrenaline rushing through my body really helps me to be at my peak strength and I guess performance and kind of feel like you're defying gravity. Yeah. Do you dance at all? I'm just curious, like if it feels like dancing or if there's any other thing in life that gives you the same feeling. I do not dance or anything, (laughs) but uh, I don't know. For me, climbing is a very unique feeling. So I think you were around four when you started climbing? Yeah, I found climbing when I was four at some local rec centers. At that age, I was just, I didn't climb very regularly and just did it for fun. But when I was about seven or eight, that's when I found like real climbing gyms and started taking things more seriously. How At four, how would you have found climbing services? Like, is it something your parents wanted you to do? Were you climbing out of the crib? You know, like, help, help me understand uh, that. Not really at all. My parents don't have any background in climbing, but uh, I would always climb on furniture at the house, like exercise bikes and the railings. But my parents never pushed me into climbing. I just found a wall at a local rec center and all the colorful holds and the tall wall really, I I was encapsulated by it. It was really psyched to get on the wall and try to ring the bell at the top. Yeah, they're they're really beautiful climbing walls, and, and you describe them as colorful. That's right. It's like a rainbow. Um, what is the most surprising thing or place you've scaled, you've climbed? Uh, the coolest, I mean, competition-wise, some of the coolest venues that I've been to are uh, random places in Europe. Innsbruck, Austria has a super cool backdrop with great mountains. And then I recently competed in Valars, Switzerland, which is right in the like alps it's very cool but uh the red river gorge which is in kentucky is a really unique spot with mind-blowing walls oh i'll have to add it to my bucket list red river gorge you were just 13 when you won your first youth world championships you took home a bronze medal in the world cup this year in switzerland so do you already know some of your olympic competitors uh, I do. Okay. Uh, I Up until this year, I hadn't gotten to compete on the adult stage internationally, but this spring and summer, I've been able to compete in some of the World Cups, which has been a very cool experience to finally meet some of my fellow Olympic athletes and start to bond with more people around the world. 
Does that make it a little less intimidating to kind of know the enemy? And I, I, I use the term enemy in jest, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, definitely. Up uh-huh. until this point, I really only knew uh, Nathaniel, who's the other U.S. climber, and maybe a handful of other people. But now that I've competed with and talked with some of the other athletes, it's definitely a lot less intimidating. You mentioned Nathaniel. That's Nathaniel Coleman, by the way, on mm-hmm. the U.S. team. At 17 years old, you're one of the youngest American athletes to compete in any sport in Tokyo. Uh, And I understand you qualified for the Games as a 16-year-old high school sophomore. Do you get tired of questions about your age? Uh, Not really. I I don't mind it. I think it's pretty crazy how young I qualified. And I guess it's cool that people recognize that. Why do you think you qualified as as young as you did? Uh, I don't know. I think... Some of my qualifications, being in the right place at the right time, I was just starting to, I mean, being 16, I was growing, getting stronger, and uh, I was able to be at my peak strength right at the qualifying events for Tokyo, and I have lots of experience from youth competitions that I was able to carry into the adult scene pretty quickly. I think what I hear you saying is that your training combined with puberty, is that what I hear you saying? A little bit. Yeah. I mean... I've been a late bloomer, so in the last couple of years, I've, with each inch I grow, it's been really helpful to my climbing. The Tokyo Olympics were set to happen in 2020, but as we all know, the pandemic uh, dashed those plans. What was it like to have qualified for 2020 and then heard, sorry, the whole thing's on hold now? Uh, it was definitely very surprising. I mean, everything was super crazy with the pandemic. I mean, it was definitely the correct decision. Uh, for me personally, I think it was a good thing. Again, being so young and growing and having that extra year train has been super beneficial. And uh, especially since I qualified pretty late, it was March 1st. And with the games scheduled for July, it would have been a very quick turnaround and pretty stressful. But now having extra time has been great to have more experience than I would have otherwise. You're more ready, in other words. Definitely. Did training change at all in pan- in the pandemic? A little bit. At first, when a lot of the climbing gyms were shut down, I was forced to uh, train on a wall that I have in my basement. And it's awesome being in Colorado that I was able to climb outside instead of training in a gym, being able to train on rocks and really enjoy climbing for the fun of it a little more than the training portion. Mm -hmm. But uh, as the years gone on and things have started to become more open, training's pretty normal just for a while having to climb with a mask. But it was nothing was too different. I don't think of basements as having very tall ceilings. How do you have a climbing wall that's any good in a basement? Uh, I wouldn't say it's very good, (laughs) but uh, with, I guess, nine to 10 foot ceilings, it's just making the most of the space and the wall is super overhung. So there's some more terrain. Overhung, meaning you're actually climbing on the ceiling a little bit. Kind of, just like it's more angled, like a 45 degree wall. Oh, I see. I see. Okay since you'll have more, I guess, climbing space than if it was straight up. But, and you, uh, you can manipulate that and make it different? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. One of your longtime climbing friends, 20-year-old Brooke Rabatou from Boulder, uh, is also mm-hmm. on the U.S. climbing team headed to Tokyo with you, which is like, there's a lot of Colorado representation on this team, because what is the team? Four people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I've trained with Brooke ever since I was, like, I started competing when I was like eight years old. Her mom is Robin Rabatou is like the founder of Team ABC where I've trained since then. And uh, 
yeah, Brooks always been a part of my like training ever since I was a little kid. So it's super cool to have someone I know so well be on the Olympic team with me. And I mean, it's awesome that two out of the four team members are from Colorado. With all you have to juggle as an Olympian, do you do as well in school as you'd like? I think sometimes it can hinder my like academics, but uh, I'm a very dedicated student and I make sure to have a well-planned out schedule so I have time for both school and climbing. And, and pesky interviews, Colin. Yeah. Yeah. As we wrap up, I, I do understand that you're pursuing an engineering degree in college. Is that right? Uh, yeah, as for now, that's that's the plan. I'm, I'm a STEM. I like STEM a lot, so that would. Is there a link? Do you think between climbing and and STEM? Uh, a little bit. There's a lot of climbers that are smart and really enjoy math and science. I mean, at my uh, school, my math teacher is a climber as well. Uh, coincidentally, so. Is it about problem solving? Do you think? I think a little bit. Yeah, climbing is the sport just as much as physical as about problem solving and kind of the mental aspect of it. So I think a lot of people that enjoy solving like real life problems also enjoy climbing for that reason. Uh, One last question. I understand this is one of the last interviews you're giving before the games begin. So you can begin to really focus on the sport. Are there other things that you taper that you shut off social media, you know, whatever, when you're getting ready for competition? Not too much. I definitely still like look at my social media and phone as I would normally. But I think as it gets closer, I'll just be more and more focused on climbing and not having too many distractions. What What are the biggest distractions? Uh, it'll be nice being in Tokyo, like the distractions of everyday life and being at home and, you know, like every day having to go run errands with parents or any other normal Normal. <laughs> other, any other everyday stuff, but being in Tokyo, just be in the hotel, focused on the climbing and the Olympics. Thank you so much, Colin, for your time. I'm grateful for it. Yeah, thank you so much. 17-year-old Colin Duffy joined us from Broomfield. He's the youngest American on the inaugural U.S. rock climbing team headed to Tokyo. There are five other new sports in this summer's Olympics. Surfing, skateboarding, karate, baseball, and softball. A week before the Games, there's a new report out on sexual abuse among Olympic athletes and others. 93% of athletes surveyed experienced unwanted contact or sexual harassment during their time in sports without reporting it. Nearly 4,000 athletes across more than 50 sports responded. Half of those same athletes say they knew of a coach developing a sexual relationship with an athlete the coach had taught as a minor. This report comes from the Denver nonprofit U.S. Center for Safe Sport. Congress created it in 2017 after the case of a gymnastics team doctor who abused more than 150 girls. You can read the story from our Southern Colorado reporter, Dan Boyce, at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR is committed to mentor the next generation of journalists and broadcasters, and this August will host the Next Gen Radio program. If you're a college student or recent graduate who's thinking about a career in radio or starting your own podcast, this is your opportunity to learn directly from the professionals in our newsroom. I'm Patrice Mondragon from the CPR News production team and a proud alum of the NextGen program. Learn how to report and interview, edit and produce your own multimedia journalism project. 
Find more info at nextgenradio.org. In a cold, isolated bay in Alaska, you can watch humpback whales rise slowly to the surface, then hear them breathe. What's more important to scientists like Leanna Matthews, though, is what the whales are saying underwater. That's called the whoop, and Matthews spent a month in Alaska a while back with a team to figure out just what whoop means. Their work, and actually their conversation with the whales, is chronicled in a new documentary called Fathom. It's on Apple TV+. Matthews is an affiliate professor at Metropolitan State University of Denver. She studies the sounds that living things, including whales, make underwater. Turns out, by the way, the whales talk more when the ocean's quiet as it was during the pandemic. And, uh, Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, yeah, I'm so happy to be here. I'll have you translate that whoop in a moment. But this is all a key to a bigger mystery, right? What are you trying to learn? Uh, You know, we have quite a few research questions, and they're all really aimed at conservation. Um, And and one of the things that's important about conservation science in general is understanding what you're trying to conserve. So we're really going out and answering these what might seem like relatively basic questions that we just don't know about what's in the ocean. So... um, Another, one of the things that's really interesting about marine life specifically in the ocean is that they communicate acoustically because there's not really another good way to communicate underwater. Right, you it's often murky. Yeah, exactly. Especially up in Alaska. The waters are not uh, very see-through and smell doesn't travel very far. So if you want to say something to a member of your species, doing it acoustically is the way to do it. Uh, and so we're trying to understand the acoustics of those species that live there with the ultimate goal goal of being able to conserve their environment and allow them to communicate in the way that they need to communicate. So you want to maintain that communication. It's important to maintain the environments that foster that communication, Absolutely. of course. And is it really that you are hoping to learn a language and be able to speak it, do you think? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question and, and kind of a question that we're getting a lot, especially about this study. Uh, we are not necessarily trying to be able to speak it. We're just trying to understand the importance of a specific type of call in the species that we're, that we're interested in studying. And in, in this case, what's featured in the film is we're looking at humpback whales specifically. And so I don't think we ever have the goal or necessarily want to have the goal of being able to speak to a whale. We want to know uh, what they're saying to each other. And we're really eavesdropping is what we're doing. You're eavesdropping. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And if you understand what they're saying to each other, just draw that link a little more clearly for me between that and conservation. Sure. I mean, there's, especially in, in the humpback whale population, they are an extremely vocal species and they make a wide range of calls. Um, they're probably most famously known for their song that they sing on the breeding grounds. Which and, we'll talk about yeah. <laughs> later in this conversation. It's also a part of the film Fathom. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I mean, I referred to the whoop. What are the names of other vocalizations? Uh, I mean, there's one called a growl, which is very similar to the whoop. Uh, there's one called a teepee. There's one called uh, uh, an auga, which is kind of uh, exactly what it sounds like. Uh, I mean, the, the, the repertoire of calls that they have is really incredible. And so it seems like 
it would make sense that these calls serve different functions. And this call that we looked at specifically, the whoop call, is yeah. produced by all ages of whales, all sex classes of whales, in all populations of whales, in all ocean basins. Oh, so it's a good one to study because it's pervasive. Yes, it's a great one to study. And it seems like the obvious first one to study. Uh, so if there is a sound that is produced by all whales all times of the year in all places, it's probably really important. So what does it mean? What are these whales using it for? Uh, and if we can answer that question, uh, if we know the function of a call, it's a lot easier to conserve it. It's a lot easier to conserve it. Is it possible that people are interfering with it? Absolutely. Uh, that's one of our other main focuses of our research is the impacts of human-generated noise on the acoustic communication of these species. Uh, we, as humans, use the water a lot, and the things that we use the water for are really loud, um, especially up in Southeast Alaska. If you want to go to Southeast Alaska in the summer, a lot of times you go on a cruise ship. So there's lots of cruise ship noise underwater. And just like if if you and I were having this conversation in a crowded bar at a concert venue, we would have to adjust our communication strategy. Mm -hmm. And marine mammals have to do the same thing. And so we're trying to figure out what are those adjustments that they're making and are those adjustments impactful on that call function? Cruise ships are loud to those below them. Yes, very loud. You can oftentimes if you, um, so we drop a piece of equipment in the ocean called a hydrophone. It's an underwater microphone. And when we have these hydrophones underwater, if we're listening to them sort of live, uh, we can hear a cruise ship before we can see a cruise ship. Wow. The, the sound underwater travels very far and very fast. Do you have some sense, because if I were in a crowded bar, I would speak up, even if my company was close by. Do you have a sense that whales are getting louder as a result, competing with the noise? That's a really good question. And there's sort of some, some communication strategies that we see across mammalian species, because whales are mammals just like we are mammals, yeah. even though their behavior is very different and the way they produce sound is very different. Um, so, so we as humans generally increase the, the volume at which we're talking. We might increase the frequency or the pitch at wh which we're talking, and we might have to repeat ourselves, right? And we have found, science has found that marine mammals do a lot of those same strategies. They might get louder. They might increase the frequency or the pitch of their vocalization, or they might repeat themselves, or they might wait for when it's more quiet to actually say something underwater. So they're responding indeed and mm -hmm. adapting. I suppose one question you have is to what extent can they no longer adapt? I mean, at what point is it just too chaotic an environment for them? That, that must worry you. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's sort of why we're trying to go out and answer these these questions about these different species. And, and you know, depending on the marine mammal, we have seen some marine mammal species that can't increase their volume in underwater noise. Oh, like what? Uh, so I have done quite a bit of work on looking at the vocalizations of harbor seals underwater. Um, and during the summer, which is also uh, when cruise ships are pretty prevalent in Alaska, uh, these male harbor seals will make a sound called a roar, and they do it all day, every day. And uh, they're already screaming as loud as they can to try and attract females, we think. Uh, and it seems like they can't get louder in the they presence of noise. They can't get any louder. Yeah. All right. I was holding as a cliffhanger what whoop might actually mean from these humpback whales. What do you think it means? It's such a good question, and that is sort of what we were trying to figure out. Um, and so, sort of our our hypothesis, it's that is, it's it's a contact call in the sense that a whale uses it to say that they are there. 
right? If they are traveling through a place or entering into a, you know, a, a new area, maybe they, they might make this call to say, I am here. And, and sort of what we've seen with our research um, and what's touched on in the film is that, you know, when we play this call, this whoop call, we get an acoustic response from a humpback whale. If we say, I am here, I am humpback whale, we hear another whale say, I am over here and I am also humpback whale. In a way, it's the most fundamental expression. It's the expression of existence. That seems like a great way to put it, yeah. Uh-huh. So you play calls, uh, underwater speakers, I guess. Yes. And are those recordings of other whales or do you have like a, a whale generator? <laughs> yeah, so one of the, I mean, playbacks in general, sort of taking a sound and playing it back to the animal that makes that sound is a, a very common way of addressing this question of call function. Um, but you need a lot of things before you can do a playback. You need to have a, a general understanding of the species and their, their communication strategies and the sounds that they make. And you have to have a lot of pre-existing recordings of this sound. So we took a lot of pre-existing recordings of this sound and kind of mixed it around and had a wide variety of whoops that we played back to these whales. And we wanted to make sure that we were always playing back different whoops that had been recording it recorded at different times to make sure that they're responding to that call type in general and not just this one specific whoop that we recorded this one time. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, take us on the water just a little bit more. It, it sounds like it would be a perfectly lovely day if it were vacation to be on an Alaskan bay, but the conditions are not uh, easy and the, and the threats are real. I mean, being capsized by a whale is a possibility, isn't it? It is definitely a possibility that we are aware of. Uh, we are on a small boat. Uh, we are on a boat that is smaller than the whales. Uh, but we have a lot of experience around these animals, and we have a great and deep respect for these animals. And so while it's possible that, yes, they could capsize us, um, we generally don't put ourselves in positions where that would be a threat. But even the sort of the whale piece aside, like you said, it's not an easy sort of um, thing to do. The island that we were on that's featured in the film is a very remote island that's only accessible by boat or by a float plane. Uh, and so we had to get flown on one of those planes that takes off from the water and lands on the water with everything that we needed, all of our food, all of our water, all of our equipment. Um, there's no electricity on this island. There's no plumbing on this island. So we have to figure out how to live a day-to-day -day life of doing laundry and going to the bathroom and all of these normal things that you do on a daily basis. Well, and uh, you've got all this equipment. And we have all of this equipment that requires some sort of power. Mm. Yes. And so it's a really complicated and difficult life to live, but we love it. And it's such a special experience to be just immersed in nature. Remind me of the name of the bay. Uh, we were in Hobart Bay, which is in Southeast Alaska. I just want to say the company you keep, these enormous humpback whales, uh, 50 feet long, 30 tons. Very, very big, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what does it feel like, just as a, as a person, a fellow mammal, <laughs> to know that they are seemingly responding to you? You know, the first time we did a playback, it was... It was really exciting um, because my my colleague who is in the documentary as well, Dr. Michelle Fournay, she had been 
thinking about this project for years and getting there and doing it. And it's a very complicated project. We had lots of equipment we needed to put in the water, lots of data collection techniques we needed to fine tune. Years of prep went into Years of prep, exactly. And so when we get there and we do it, scientifically, it's just so exciting. And then you look at the data and it just feels so rewarding. You look at the data and then you have to take moments to remind you, like to pinch yourself about the natural beauty. I mean, the, the, the cinematography in this new film on Apple TV Plus, Fathom, uh, is is breathtaking just for the viewer alone. I it's, can't imagine being It's a being beautiful there. film. I mean, that the part of the the world that we're in is a beautiful part of the world. And, and the film follows us in Alaska, and it also follows another scientist in an equally beautiful part of the world. Indeed. And you mentioned her, Ellen Garland, in the South Pacific. She is studying the song of the humpback whale. People have been studying Pumpback's song for 40, 50 years. And still, no one really knows why they sing. I was a kid, people bought CDs and tapes of that. Do you remember that? I, I do, okay. yeah. yeah. What, what is she trying to learn from Humpback Whale Song? Uh, yeah, Ellen's research is very interesting, and Humpback Whale Song is very complicated, and I very much admire the scientists who spend their life studying it, because what we study in Alaska is not song. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit different. And so what she's looking at, and, and something that scientists have been learning about these humpback whales is that sort of in one year, humpback whales will sing a certain song. And then in that next year, that song has traveled to a different part of the world and different whales are singing this song. And the song travels around the globe to these different parts of the world. It's like a whale folk song. It is, yeah. And as this song is traveling around the world new song is being created and learned and shared. And so she is trying to find sort of where the the boundaries are of, of where a song goes in a certain year. Yeah, and the film features this kind of song map. And mm-hmm. you can see her circling where she's heard a particular tune. And she calls it culture. I would agree with her. But yeah. why? why? Explain maybe scientifically why you <laughs> might use the term culture. I mean, if you just think about it from from what they're doing, right, they're creating these these new series of sounds and phrases that get linked together to form these songs. And then they're sharing that information with other members of their species who are sharing that information with other members of their species, which to me seems very cultural. And there are other things that whales do that seem cultural. Uh, they, They make these bonds, these, I mean, friendships, if you want to anthropomorphize it a little mm. bit, uh, that last for decades, right? Um, so they they have these elements of culture. And, and one of the things that we've kind of gotten a lot of comparisons uh, with this film is, is thinking about, you know, sort of the search for intelligent life on other planets. And in my mind, we have intelligent life right here on this planet that we still don't really understand. It's an interesting perspective. 
Uh, how is it to do this work from landlocked Colorado? <laughs> <laughs> it requires a couple of plane rides to get there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I've I've kind of always traveled to do this type of science. Um, I When I was working on my PhD, I was in upstate New York at Syracuse University. And while I was there, I was also studying uh, marine mammals in southeast Alaska. So actually, my commute to my field site has gotten a little bit shorter. Oh, okay, from yeah. Colorado. <laughs> exactly. I wonder, because you are so connected to sound, if you find yourself when you're in Alaska or elsewhere, often closing your eyes to take in the sound better. Is that is that an experience you have? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the same as like when you're driving and you're going to a new place that you've never been before and you turn down the radio, yeah. right? Like you're kind of trying to <laughs> narrow down the, the senses that are are going into your brain. And, and so, yeah, we absolutely do that same thing. We might put some headphones on to listen and we'll close our eyes to really focus on the sound. Before we go, a major thrust of this film is isolation because you spend so long in remote places, uh, if not alone, in very small groups. How do you deal with that? I enjoy it. I, I think it's it's a really special experience to be so disconnected, especially in a world where we are very connected. Um, we can basically reach anybody at any time. And we're in these places where we don't have cell phone service. And so we have to say goodbye to our partners and our parents and our dogs and 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 make our way to this field site, and, which can be a little disorienting uh, when you first arrive, but we're so busy <laughs> mm. that we're, and we're just so focused that it really just, we just settle in very quickly. I think the hardest part about the isolation is coming back from the isolation. <laughs> um, you know, we, we fly from the island into Juneau, which is not a large airport, but it's so overwhelming. The sounds, the people, everything. It's just, it's kind of a lot coming from that island. I think people emerging from a pandemic might relate to you more than ever. Lana, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it, Professor. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Lana Matthews, affiliate professor at Metropolitan State University of Denver and assistant director of the nonprofit Sound Science Research Collective. She has a doctorate in biology from Syracuse University. And she's featured in this gorgeous new film on Apple TV Plus, Fathom. It's the time of year when rain from the North American monsoon can move into parts of Colorado. The afternoon moisture and cloud cover are vital to keeping pastures and rivers healthy. The rain also lowers wildfire risk. But CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports that new research suggests climate change means the monsoon is becoming less helpful. This is a welcome sound in the city of Gunnison, where Governor Jared Polis has declared a drought emergency, along with the rest of western Colorado. This rain has brought some much-needed relief after three years of almost no summer monsoon rains for the southwest. We call it the no-soon because we just didn't get anything. That's Bill Trampy, a third-generation Gunnison rancher. He sits in a plastic lawn chair in his backyard on the more than 150 private acres his cattle graze. Our hay crop was terrible a year ago, just wouldn't grow. And I think the temperatures had a lot to do with it. And then it just turned off horribly dry in June, July, August, and September. No monsoon at all. Trampy says most ranchers in Gunnison ran out of hay, so they had to buy it to feed their cattle. And that gets expensive. 
Champy was worried it was too dry for the land to support the number of cows he had, so he killed more cows in the fall than he usually would. And I actually sold some cows in the wintertime, which is uncommon. But I was fearful of what we were going to be looking at this summer. While hay grows on Trampy's private land using water from the Gunnison River, his cattle graze on federal land. There, Trampy says, they're running out of water. We've got one ditch that's got the whole creek in it, and we're trying to irrigate three, 400 acres out of that one ditch and probably 600 acres that are nothing. And so these rains are super important. But these rains are getting less reliable and less effective. Recent research has found that as the climate warms, not as much of this rain makes it into rivers. Rosemary Carroll is an associate professor of hydrology at the Desert Research Institute in Nevada, but she lives in Crested Butte near Gunnison. She says it starts with the snowpack, what collects in the mountains over the winter. If you have a big snow year and that snowpack lasts late into the spring, early summer, then your soil moisture storage is high. And if temperatures stay cool, less water evaporates back into the atmosphere. Conditions like that would mean rainfall would more likely reach a stream. But if it's hot with less snowpack and the soils are dried out, that then will bias for the same amount of rainfall, less monsoon rain making it into the stream. So with climate change... Now an average water year looks more like a drought or a moderate drought. Carol is standing on the edge of a high dirt road, overlooking a winding tributary that eventually feeds water to the Colorado River, which supplies 40 million people in the southwest. The nation's two largest reservoirs are on this river, Powell and Mead. Their levels are dwindling to record lows, and climate change means less water is making it into this system. Carol is worried about where things are headed. It would be hard not to be. Another study out of the University of Arizona found that dry periods are lasting longer across the West as the climate changes. When rain does fall, it can come in fewer and larger storms. Joel Biederman is the co-senior author and a research hydrologist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is a concern because grasses, which are, of course, important to a rancher, have shallow roots. And even if the total amount of rainfall is the same during the growing season, a few really large rainstorms, isn't that beneficial? That's because those shallow roots rely on a steady supply of moisture. Without that consistent rain, plants dry out, and that can lead to wildfires. Don Falk is a forest ecologist at the University of Arizona. There's a dry period between the winter rains and the summer rains. That's often when we get many of our biggest fires, May, June, early July. But then in the monsoon climate, the rains come along and essentially shut down the fire season. Through studying tree rings in some neighboring states like Arizona and New Mexico, Falk found that years with a weak monsoon meant widespread fire in the mountains of this region. Now, with weak or delayed monsoon rains, the fire season extends into the hottest months of the year. It really plays a huge role in setting up these gigantic fires that have been happening in Colorado and throughout the southwest because the monsoon isn't playing that role of ending the major part of the fire season. The monsoon has already helped dampen some fires this summer, and more rain is in the forecast. If the rain continues, it could help Colorado avoid another year of dangerous late-season wildfires. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. The pandemic meant Colorado Matters couldn't hit the road like we used to, but we're preparing to be on the road again. In late August, our team will visit six spots. Rocky Ford, Colorado Springs, Fort Morgan, Grand Junction, the Four Corners, and Alamosa. 
If you know those places, we'd love your story ideas. Head over to CPR.org slash roadtrip and give us your input at CPR.org slash roadtrip. This is Colorado Matters. Parts of western Colorado have been in a drought for the last 20 years. Climate change has also caused warmer temperatures, heat waves, and reduced snowpack. All contribute to conditions ripe for severe wildfires. Last year, 6,500 wildfires scorched Colorado. Fire seasons are now 78 days longer than they were in the 70s. I'm Sam Brash from the CPR News Climate Team. Here on CPR News, listen to the latest reports on climate change and sign up for CPR's weekly climate newsletter at CPR.org. Giant, colorful hearts continue to pop up along the Front Range, including a new 12-foot-tall one that's on the side of Denver Health. Words like hope, esperanza, and love are emblazoned across these hearts. They are the work of artist Coco Byer of Denver. And she says no project she's ever done has taken off like this one, called Hashtag Project Spread Hope. We first spoke in February. Candy-colored hearts, let's say, are not your usual fare. You've tended to do almost surrealist stuff, like a a dapper fellow with an eyeball for a head. Uh, How did the idea of the colorful heart occur to you? I really wanted to do um, something specific when the lockdown started that kind of addressed the situation. And it really elevated people's mood a little bit and hopefully gave people a little bit of hope. The color palette on these I call pink lemonade, which is one that does show up a lot in my regular, much more mysterious work. But for this particular set of, uh, of images, I really wanted to do something that had a really clear intent. Pink lemonade. I, to... I, I love that description of color. And, and just describe the hearts. I mean, they're fairly large. And again, they have the word hope in them. Most of them are are uh, about six foot by six foot, though there are smaller and larger ones around. And um, it's basically just a, a heart shape that's yellow and uh, it has a yellow stripe around the outside. And then it's yellow and magenta concentric stripes going into the center. And then it says just the word hope. Hundreds of Coloradans have asked you to paste these hearts on their walls and in their windows uh, restaurants, the Denver Botanic Gardens, History Colorado Center. Uh, Coco, do you ever get to hear what these hope hearts mean to the people who see them, who pass them every day? You know, uh, a lot of people have reached out to me generally through my Instagram. This this whole project's been run through my my Instagram, and, um, and I've gotten some amazing feedback from people who just tell me how they lighten their mood, or I heard from one hospital worker who told me that she sees it every day and it like helps her go to work every day. And so I've had some really amazing responses. I would, so many people tell me that they, they feel better when they see them, which I just love to hear. Yeah, they feel like little confirming anchors all around town when we are all so at sea, metaphorically. <laughs> You've sent Project Spread Hope pasting kits to other cities, I understand, Chicago, Minneapolis, Kansas City, New York. Are you surprised at how this has taken off? You know, it's it's been a really interesting project and in how much it, it has taken off. I've I've really done it all along in kind of a, a opposite way that I do my projects in the past, where I basically put some out into the world and um, took pictures of them and put them on my Instagram and asked people if they had a high visibility spot to put one uh, to contact me, and they've just been 
contacting me ever since. And uh, it's been it's been really uh, kind of a unique situation, even with the ones out of town has been the same where people have reached out to me. They've seen them in my feed and uh, and they just wanted to put some up in their own town. And it's been really amazing that way. These hearts and much of your other work is called pasting. I mean, you use a biodegradable plant-based glue. And that means much of your work fundamentally is ephemeral. It disappears. D- does that make you sad as an artist? <laughs> you know, actually, I, I love to watch them fade away. I have also enjoyed kind of paper aging. And so with the whole parts, I've, tr- I've been a little bit more aggressive with re- with replacing them frequently so that they they stay a little bit fresher. Um, there's so many of them out there now that I'm kind of in a, a constant process of trying to replace them all and uh, and get them all refreshed. But uh, no, I, I don't, I you know, with hope, I don't want to have it be too tattered out in the street. I have a friend go, <laughs> well, does this mean that faded hope if it's faded? And I'm like, I think it's still, even if they're faded, they still mean hope, you know, and so it actually works either way. You do what you call permission pieces, meaning you always have an owner's blessing before you put these hearts up. How do you see pasting as different from other types of street art? Uh, you know, in the past, I've generally had sort of done a combination of, of pieces where people asked me to do them, but most of the ones were kind of on things like boarded over windows and dumpsters and just kind of ugly things out in our world that could use a little bit of beautification. Whereas this project has been completely by people reaching out to me and, and asking to put things on their, uh, their spots. So it's, it's definitely been a different, uh, a different uh, process for it. And I think going forward in the future, um, I will do this more than I have in the past as far as just, reaching out and saying, hey, do you want one of these on your on your building instead of uh, constantly going out there and trying to find places for them. But otherwise, you saw it as your mission to beautify ugly places in the city. I mean, dumpsters <laughs> included. I, I guess dump- dumpsters are still private property, though, right? So there's, there's a, a fine line there. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> there's a good point where I don't, don't tell anybody. But uh, <laughs> I will figure if it's something, you know, I, I mentioned I use biodegradable paste and they're made out of paper. They, they basically come right off with water if you want to take them off. And so, you know, I, some, someone called it uh, vandalism light. Um, at some point. <laughs> but I, you know, I never go onto people's private property or climb fences or any of those kinds of things. I, I try and keep it strictly where I'm trying to improve the visual landscape of the city and that's really my my only goal. And then if if somebody if one gets we call it when things get painted over we call it getting buffed. And so when when one gets buffed, I, I never go back to that spot again. And you know that that's a symbol to me that they don't want that on their property. And uh, so I, I try and be uh, try and not be a vandal. I guess. A vandal. <laughs> what was the term you used for when something gets covered over? Uh, buffed. Buffed. Okay. When you when something yeah. gets buffed. You've done versions of these hearts that say votes. You did rainbow ones for pride. And the font you chose is near and dear to you because you are in a family of artistic royalty, one might say. 
it's my it's definitely my favorite font and it's called font universal it's by my step-grandfather herbert Bayer, and um, it's a font that he designed in the 1920s that is really one of the very first modern sensory fonts and has been super influential in, in all other fonts I, I love it because it's so so clear and uh and uh, it's a great has a great weight to it. Yeah, so Herbert Bayer was a celebrated graphic designer and architect and painter and all sorts of things. He lived in yeah. Aspen. He designed ski posters, co-designed the Aspen Institute, helped restore the Wheeler Opera House. In just a few seconds, Coco, do you imagine the Heart Project will end after the pandemic? You know, I think there's probably always a place in the world for hope. I think Obviously, right now we need it more than ever, you know, and so as long as I feel that there's a need for it, it'll be part of the mix of what I do. But uh, I think there's probably always a place for hope in the world. That is artist Coco Bayer in February. Bayer created the colorful hearts of Project Spread Hope. Her work is also on display at Sally Centigrade, an art gallery in Lakewood. The exhibition is called I Hope This Finds You Well. And that's our show, with thanks to the folks at the heart of it. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.